Well, good morning, class. Uh, we are on quarantine today. Uh, the church elders decided that we cancel the the main corporate worship service. Uh, that would include the the small Bible studies that we're meeting in the various rooms of the church today. Uh, I'd like us to pray for the nation this morning uh, together. And I know you will all be uh, watching the live stream soon, or many of you will be that are able. I'd have the internet uh, capability to watch on YouTube or through the church website. But we need to pray for the nation and to pray for the leaders and to, for the government and for the many individuals and people at all the different levels of society that are dealing with this uh, COVID-19 coronavirus uh, strain that's affecting us this year of 2020. Pray for wisdom. Uh, pray that the church ultimately would have an opportunity, uh, the church all across America and all across the world, would have an opportunity to share the truth of, of God's sovereignty and that we'd be able to live that out faithfully, that we are not in charge of our life or our death, that these things are determined by God and that we faithfully entrust ourselves to his hand in these types of events and we do not go, we don't lose control. We don't, we don't go overboard with our fear, but that we ultimately leave our fear, we fear God and we know that he is in charge of such things and we show that we still trust we entrust our lives to our faithful creator and sustainer and that God determines when he sustains life and when he ends life and that we can be a faithful witness of the gospel in this time and point people that are in fear of their lives and are deeply stressed about death that we can point them to the creator that we can point them to the Messiah, the, the Savior, the Christ, the Anointed One and show them that he is magnificent, that he is worthy of fear and trembling, that he is worthy of love and worship, and that only the Messiah can grant you eternal life, and that ultimately what people need to understand is that there's two eternal destinies. Either you are eternally destined and headed for hell, or you are eternally destined and headed toward heaven. And the only way to be on the road toward heaven is by putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the God of the Bible. By repenting of your sins, agreeing with God that you have sinned against Him, you've wronged Him, you've transgressed Him, and that you haven't lived your life for Him, and that you trust that God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to be a propitiation for your sins, that Jesus atoned for your sins, that Jesus took care of your sins, that Jesus washed your sins away and that the courtroom of God's justice, God's justice was satisfied with Jesus' blood on your behalf. That Jesus was a lawyer, that Jesus was your advocate and that he cleared you of your guilt before God. You trust in Jesus Christ. You cling to him and what he did and that he was capable of satisfying God's justice satisfying God's wrath that you deserved. And that's what people need at this, this time. So many people 
and, and I, I would actually argue we're going to get into t discussing civil disobedience today a little bit with regard to government in Romans 13, 1 through 7. We'll be covering 1 through 4 again slightly. We're talking about issues concerning those, those verses. But that the church, even in this time, and the church in history has many examples of people willing to die when, the, when plagues are wiping out hundreds of thousands or millions of people. Christians are willing to go and share the good news and possibly be infected with disease. And now this, this isn't a command to, oh, this is what you have to go do. I think many Christians recognize in the past that this, this is true, that God is sovereign, and that even in the face of death, we hold to the faithful witness. We hold to doing what we're supposed to do. And many people might have opportunity to go visit older people or even middle-aged people that are, could be affected or be dying because of this. There are many people that are still in hospitals and homes, shut-ins, that still need to hear the gospel from us. And we might need to still perform our ministries and our duties to loving our neighbors. Uh, the many Christians that are involved with uh, being nurses and doctors and so many other things uh, helps uh, nurse, nurse aides and assistants, chefs at uh, old folk homes that are still witnesses for Jesus in this time, that they, they use this opportunity to share the love of God and the truth to the end, even in the event that our going to work as essential personnel, or that if we go and try to serve and minister to these people, and I know some places have outlawed that you can't come in, and obviously you, you can't do that. However, I would encourage you to still to pray. And for those that still have opportunities to visit people in dire circumstances and situations, that you be willing uh, to somehow find a way to communicate with them. Uh, and maybe that is through phone or Skype or FaceTime. Uh, we have, uh, you know, thank the Lord, we have opportunities to call one another. You know, somebody was dying of sickness in their home with a, a very serious plague or illness um, that they might be able to talk with us uh, through internet means or phone means. So let's pray this morning for these things. Lord, we... We know that you are God, that you are in control of all things. You've created everything on the earth, in the face of the earth. All of us, God, are your creation. Every dust molecule, every atom belongs to you, and you sustain it in its course, in its natural course. You sustain it with your providence. You sustain it, Jesus, by the power of your might. We know that you are resurrected, Lord, that you are indeed the king over death and that the resurrection is our great hope and that we don't have to fear death because death could not keep you, our Lord, at bay. It could not hold you, it could not bind you, but that you indeed rose above death and conquered death on our behalf. You conquered sin that holds us back and that would ultimately result in us receiving your wrath. But you've conquered our sin and you've conquered the death that we deserve. And we trust and we hope eternally in you. Our hope is in your power and is in your might. Our trust is in you, not in our riches, not in the strength of, of young men, 
Lord, we are a weak people. We are creatures that are sustained by our Creator. God, help us, help the many Christians in this time across the world to have opportunities to continue to be strengthened, to share the gospel, to share the truth, and to tell people that they need to have their sins forgiven of them, that this is the greatest message, that they need to be right with you and that they need to trust in Jesus Christ to turn away from their sins and to know what Jesus did for them on the cross and in the resurrection, his death, burial, and resurrection, that this message would be on our tongues and on our hearts and that we would be strengthened and encouraged and find great joy and striving to share this message with others. In spite of the, the quarantine, the sickness uh, type of things that we have going on in the country with regard to this coronavirus strain. God, help us to look at your text this morning and for me to have wisdom and kindness as I answer some of the questions. Uh, from the people there that uh, are in our Sunday school class. Help me to do so with grace and with peace and tranquility and with truth, God, that uh, I would strive to be answering truthfully. I don't want to answer wrongly. Um, and I, I hope that everyone will realize that, that I'm trying to do my due diligence to be accurate and to, uh, to, not, to not raise an issue unnecessarily. And that I... And I We'll talk about how we can disagree on some of these smaller things. God, thank you so much for your love and your kindness to us, and thank you for the ability to uh, record from home and to continue putting out um, information about you to people, Christians and non-Christians. Thank you for the opportunity to have a phone that can record and a computer that can put that on the Internet. Thank you so much for these wonderful tools that you've given to us. Help us to use them faithfully for good things, for building your kingdom. God, thank you for this time this morning. Help me to be clear and to have brevity and uh, to help uh, some of the people in our Sunday school and maybe on the internet somewhere and in distant places that I would speak your truth in love and that it would be accurate and informational and that people would understand how to apply it to their lives, uh, to give you honor and glory. Lord, we focus on you, we treasure you, we want everything to be about advancing your kingdom and for your honor, glory, and fame. Amen. So, uh, last, last week we discussed Romans 13, 1 through 4. And we, we covered down on those verses pretty well in class. And then it, it ended up landing on a couple of questions regarding uh, what does civil disobedience look like in the text? Are there examples of that? There were. And we also landed on the discussion of is the American Revolutionary War just or unjust? Was there sin involved? Were the people who rebelled and who, who initiated or led the, uh, the revolution correct? Were they being scripturally right? So, so it landed on some of those topics and issues, and I, I want to address those uh, more carefully. And I sent out two pages of study notes this week with trying to kind of answer those, some of those questions that were raised. However, there was one question I didn't answer in the study notes that I want to talk about first, and that's for Mrs. N. Mrs. N, uh, you'd asked a question about, is it good for Christians to 
uh, you know, petition abortion essentially, or to go and uh, I don't know if you if you said to to not necessarily march on the street, but on the sidewalk and go in front of clinics, or uh, you know, people do different examples of uh, trying to petition against abortion. And I kind of answered, you know, I think people should focus on the preaching the gospel. And I want to discuss that a little bit more uh, in, in greater detail. And, and, uh, and kind of balance out some of only what I said last week. And that's this, is that I do believe Christians should be involved in public justice. And so I, when I say that Christians should primarily be involved with the gospel, that doesn't mean that you as an individual citizen that has certain um, rights from the government to peacefully petition, to write letters to senators and representatives and argue your case. Those things are good, and I think it's good for Christians to take time to do those things. One, uh, you are representing uh, gospel truth, and that is the sense that there are commands within the gospel about human life and justice that you can represent as a Christian for Christ to these people, and that is time well spent. That is uh, representing the gospel. Second is that I think Christians should, uh, just like if you saw an evangelist or a pastor always being angry and crazy, you don't obviously you don't want to petition that way. You want to you want to petition with peace of mind, with nobility and tact, with wisdom from the scriptures. I would really encourage you with dealing with the government. You could really read how kingly language is used and noble language is used in a lot of the Old Testament. And even in parts of the New Testament, with how the apostles and Jesus spoke to government officials, they used very, very cordial, noble language, and they were careful with their selection of words. And so I would encourage Christians to look at those examples and learn how to speak like that when they're dealing with addressing other people, and even to people every day. I think it's good for us to use our language. One, we still have to use regular language. I, I know that you don't want to speak above your audience necessarily, but maybe that's something that we can practice and grow in, is how to use our speech well uh, and season it with salt, with the truth, uh, with grace and peace. I believe it's good that Christians pursue uh, high education in universities or, and in the Bible. Uh, to seek to influence government with the principles from the Old and New Testament regarding justice and love and uh, economy and, and many of the different things that we can find in the scriptures that the scriptures do touch on. Uh, I, I do want to say, once again, is that Christians should primarily focus on advancing the kingdom through gospel ministries of the church or parachurch organizations that preach and teach the gospel via video, radio, live public evangelists and pastors, uh, that should always be the focus of the kingdom and for evangelizing your neighbors and in your own city, you know, in your own local area well with the gospel, doing all those neighborly tasks first. And I do believe it's important, and maybe you can use some of your time to write to your representatives or senators and other people or be involved with uh, some church organizations to petition those things. However, I don't want you to get, I would encourage you, man, perhaps the greatest biblical command is to be involved with your local church. And so it's good to be a part of parachurch organizations, 
but I would encourage you not to become overly involved that it starts taking you away from Sunday services or your weekday routines to where you can't be a good neighbor to uh, the people in your church. You aren't showing hospitality anymore to people in your church because you're spending so much time um, uh, doing these events, looking for, you know, trying to enforce social justice in some way, social justices that are uh, taught, discussed in the Bible. We should always have a high emphasis on our local church, on supporting our pastors, on growing in the word ourselves and how to touch and reach our neighbors. And that we should prioritize those commands and with the time that we find left, um, we can write and petition in varying ways and join in a parachurch organization. I would just encourage you to use your time wisely to see what commands are perhaps the most important, the way that Jesus modeled um, a focus on his close disciples and them teaching and preaching the people in different towns and regions and places, that that is the primary purpose. And, you know, Matthew 28, the Great Commission, the primary task of Christians on this earth that we ought to spend our most money, resources, talents, and our spiritual gifts on is the advancement of the gospel by teaching and training other disciples, by evangelizing new disciples and uh, teaching people the truth so that they can come and be baptized into the church and begin to take communion and join our bodies, the local churches. Uh, that ought to be the primary task and the place where you spend your money and your time mostly. I would encourage you to do that. I, I think most scholars and teachers would agree with that. Most evangelicals would agree that we're not anti-social justice. However, most of our time should be spent on the church and advancing the kingdom by preaching the gospel to people who need to hear it. And then through that, the people will learn the truths of the Bible, the principles of the Bible, and begin to act on those things and have good deeds in their life, reflecting the glory of Jesus Christ, his purity and holiness. Uh, last thing I want to say on that, Mrs. N, is that I would want Christians to be in every level of government, for Christians to pursue education, like I said earlier, to become lawyers, to become judges, to put in the, that hard, hard work and to get into varying degrees of government, that if you are called in that direction to do that kind of work, I would encourage Christians to be involved in that, and that if you want to become a lawyer as a Christian and represent Christ, go for it. That is awesome. That's as much of a calling as a person who's called to be a garbage man as as much as called to be a pastor. Uh, your, the purpose of God's calling in your life, your occupation, is very important. And God will use you to make disciples of men, make disciples of nations in your workplace. And that might include, like, say you're on a city council and you begin to share the gospel in peaceful ways with the, your other fellow council members. And you begin to influence the council toward what is lawful and good and to represent God well and that the people even if you use you know senators all the time you know all the way up in the federal government quote from the bible and so i don't think it's it's not awkward in many chambers of government to quote from the bible's examples of how things could be done a lot of people will see the wisdom of that and that was the purpose of a lot of the old testament was to show societies and governments wisdom uh, with varying cases of justice and order and how they ought to rule their, um, their peoples. 
And so I would encourage Christians to be lawyers, judges, police, senators, representatives, and all kinds of degrees of government that you can be involved in as an occupation, that you pursue those things with excellence and that you strive to do it well. And those people that are going to be in those places, I would encourage you to really study the Bible well and to understand the principles on how to do those things. If you're in higher degrees, even higher degrees of government or low, I would encourage you to take some Old Testament classes from good uh, Old Testament professors and New Testament and understanding some theology, maybe take some theology classes and that you would understand the big story of the Old and New Testament, that you would understand a lot of the principles, um, the theology and a lot of the laws of the Old Testament and that you'd understand and see the wisdom in a number of those things and learn how to translate and apply them to uh, perhaps your local context or whatever government or occupation that you're in. All Christians should be trying to influence those around them at their occupation, whether it's in government or in the private sector. You know, me being an electrician out at the hydroelectric dam, I seek to talk with the guys on the group, uh, the, senior, the senior electricians and mechanics, the supervisors, you know, I want to represent Christ well. And a lot of that is, is through my behavior. And, and then through opportunities and side opportunities as friendships are formed, I get to speak the gospel in private settings um, either, um, during break times or lunch times. And then also even in, in certain conversations and work in the driving out in the work truck in different places and times where there's an opportunity to talk about uh, truth with those people. Uh, Mr. K, hey Mr. K, uh, last week you'd asked some questions regarding the Revolutionary War, just or unjust. You also mentioned the Bible is primarily uh, written for individuals, not so much for groups or governments. And I, I wanted to take some time to talk about those things this morning as well. Uh, first thing, Mr. K, is that I, I believe it's okay to disagree on this issue. There, there are good Christians with different perspectives regarding the idea of the Revolutionary War and American government uh, with it being just, whether it's just or unjust, to separate from England and establish their own government. Um, that would throw off English uh, Parliament and the King that were over their uh, American governments. So uh, there are Christians with different perspectives uh, for and against uh, the Revolutionary War. I believe it's okay to differ on those issues and still hold peace together as brothers and sisters in Christ and uphold the gospel together. Uh, but getting into my points that I want to discuss today and, and you, some examples of scripture ultimately is where, we went, where I want us to land on. I don't want to base my ideas off of uh, how I feel, what I feel, but I want it to be, us all to be grounded in scripture and what scripture says and teaches as best I can. And I, I will try to, you know, emphasize my points from scripture. And I'm sure everybody else does the same. However, I, I, want, I want to do it rightly. I want to do it accurately. And pray for me if you think I'm doing it wrongly. Um, I want to be a God's man that speaks rightfully and is not trying to be biased in varying ways or shedding too much of my own personal opinion onto this. Um, just so everybody, once again, everybody knows my opinion on this matter has changed through my life. I was on one side of the fence and now I've slowly tr 
transition to another side of the fence on this issue. And so I've, I've been on the other side and it was through time and teaching and, and a lot of study that my views on this issue have changed. Uh, first thing I just want to bring up is, is England. You know, we, we read our American history books and we re read it through a uh, American lens. And, you know, we, we may, or, you know, all of us have different degrees of education and knowledge and access to various writings or what happened or different pamphlets that were printed during those times. You know, we all don't have full knowledge of everything that, you know, transpired at every uh, governmental level or private level amongst the people, the commoners. But I want us to maybe perhaps consider England's perspective, and it's good to study other people's perspectives. One, this can help you gain access to other documents that were made. You can maybe view things from another person's opinion. And this is maturity and this is growth, is that when you can read other people's opinions. A good example of this is uh, the debates between Christians regarding soteriology, salvation. Um, uh, people often find themselves on the sides of either you're generally a... Um, Believing in doctrines of grace, which historically, since you know the years you know fifteen hundred, have been called Calvinism, and before Calvin, Luther basically expressed those same doctrines of salvation regarding God's sovereignty in that issue, you know, and it goes back to the early church fathers. You know, Augustine, back in the late four hundreds, argued with a man named Pelagius regarding uh, the total depravity of man and how God had to be involved with his sovereignty over the issue. And so uh, on the other spectrum as Pelagius argued that man was ultimately responsible and he still had the ability uh, inherently to choose God. And then that's picked up by Jacob Arminius. Uh, later on, a Dutch uh, theologian who came against the other Dutch theologians after Calvin and with, uh, with discussions regarding the, a different form of soteriology and how men are saved, starting with God and then coming to man rather than kind of coming from a manward perspective and, and figuring it out, coming from a Godward perspective in, in Scripture. So Christians have argued and differed on these things, but it's good to for the opponents to study the op other opponent's side is what I want to get to is that it's good to be able to read from the other side and to see how they make their things and then go back through your side and positions and, and to be like, you know, which one is mo most accurately reflecting the facts with good hermeneutics, with a good interpretation, with a consistent interpretation of Scripture on these things and to looking at all the different Scriptures that discuss these things. And so it's good to, 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 to grow and to mature and to look at all the perspectives and to read different viewpoints on things and then to, you know, press forward and to do so with grace and peace. I want us to consider England's perspective and to consider this, that just before the Revolutionary War, why taxes began to increase on the American government. So here's some historical knowledge for you, is that there was the Seven Years' War that England came over at the request of the American government colonies, they, they wanted help from their higher government, England, to come and help them fight this war because the American governments did not have a solid military capability at this time. 
and many English and American settlers had crossed some of the Appalachian lines, which was the French and the French Indian leagues that were allied with the French. That was their territory. And that, the, the boundary lines were along in the Appalachian Mountains. And many English and American colonial settlers were pushing past those lines and were being raided and burned and their settlements were being burned because they were crossing some lines. So anyway, uh, the governments, you know, call for English help. You know, we got settlers that are being killed, our citizens, our people. And, you know, England answers the call and they come over and send ships and guns and ammunition and food and they fight the war. And many colonials join with their uh, government, their higher government, England, and join in the Seven Years' War. And they fight off, and I, I don't remember exactly historically if new boundary lines were established. They probably were, or settled, or you know, or boundary lines were reestablished, and maybe they took some new territories, which I believe did happen. And so the settlers would have more areas to move into. But a war was just fought for colonials by England, and they joined in with that war, and they actually requested it. And then English Parliament and the King had to make a decision when the war was done who was going to pay for this war. And they decided that because it was the colonies that started the war that it would be colonies that bore the brunt of the cost of the war. And so they increased taxes on the colonies to help pay for this war and the increase of land they just won for the colonies to settle. And the, then all of a sudden, the colonial government was against England, it seemed like, and many people felt like the taxes were unfair, that they were too high or whatever like that. But I want us to consider an English perspective. We just fought a war for you. Many of our English sons died, you know, in, this, in these battles. And, you know, families are mourning back in England over their many children that have been lost to fight this battle. So you could be protected and to have land in these areas that you're settling and we need to pay for all of this and you know we the parliament decided english parliament decided that primarily the blunt uh the majority of the tax should fall on the the colonies to pay for this war that just just transpired and so i think that's a good perspective is that i don't think england was crazy for increasing the taxes on england um America necessarily. It wasn't like out of this world, some ridiculous idea that was totally unfair. They just fought a battle for them. And many, it was costly. And yeah, the Americans joined in, but it was England that primarily brought in all that military structure to help actually win and enforce all of the, you know, settlement agreements with boundary lines and such with the French and the uh, Indian allies. So I want us to just, just have that information in the back of your mind. Now I want to fall back around to discussing civil disobedience and look at a couple examples in the Bible. And this is what I said in the notes, is that civil disobedience, in order for it to be civil, must be nonviolent and accept the repercussions. So if you look up the word civil, it means essentially peaceful and nonviolent. So civil disobedience is peaceful and nonviolent, if we're going to use that term. Otherwise, we have to use some other term, maybe. Maybe it'd be best to use another term if we're going to have disobedience that does have violence. Violent disobedience or something like that. 
Okay, so early on in the Bible, we see Pharaoh commanding the midwives of Israel to kill babies. Uh, Shipra and Pua were mid, uh, is, uh, Hebrew midwives. Both of them disobeyed Pharaoh. They feared God instead of Pharaoh, and that meant that they obeyed God. They respected life. Uh, same context today of not wanting babies to be killed by abortion. Similar idea. I think it's virtuous for Christians to be against um, abortion. Exodus 1, 15 through 21 talks about that. And the scriptures actually say what God says about these women. It says that God commended these women for their proper action, that what they were doing was right. And so that meant disobeying the, the Pharaoh and still helping the Israelite women give birth to their children. Um, another example is in Daniel uh, the king, there's many examples in Scripture. We'll go forward in Scripture, and then we'll come back to a, a case of, of David and Saul. The king commands his men, meaning Nebuchadnezzar, to worship an image of him as a god. This is after Daniel uh, interprets Nebuchadnezzar's vision about him being the golden head of this great statue. You know, after this event, Nebuchadnezzar thinks he's this, basically, god, and he, he erects this giant golden statue and wants people to worship him. Well, that missed the point. God, he didn't give worship to God. He ended up, his heart turned toward worship, toward himself. So Mishael, Hananiah, and Azariah, the three men that were companions of Daniel, also known as, they're renamed Babylonian names for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But Mishael, Hananiah, and Azariah, they tell the king and his officials that they can't do this with respectful excuse me, with respectful speech and their proper titles being given. Uh, this transpires in Daniel chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. So what happens is, is Nebuchadnezzar burns this furnace, gets this furnace burning super hot to throw these men in, and he has them bound, and he goes to throw them in this furnace. The men, the soldiers that are escorting these three men that refuse to worship the image of Nebuchadnezzar, uh, the men that are escorting these men into the fire, actually, I believe it says they burn and die. But Mishael, Hananiah, and Azariah all go into the fire and are untouched. God says that God sends an angel to protect them. And it says that when they come out of the fire, they don't even smell like smoke. And so that's obviously a supernatural miracle. And God protects these men who say they, they can't serve God. What's interesting is that when they tell the king, they say... Whether or not God chooses to save us from your hand, God is still God, and we can't worship you, King. And I think there's an important principle there for us as Christians and as believers in the Bible. And in whatever age we fall under, under the, the Old Testament times or the New Testament times, and that is this, that these men entrusted their lives to God. And they said, you know, it's not right for us. God is the great King. And we have to obey his laws. We can, we can serve you, Nebuchadnezzar. And in Jeremiah, it says that we were supposed to serve the Babylonians and to build houses and to pray for these people while we live amongst them. But we can't worship your gods and we can't defy all of our laws. Uh, we, still, we still have to obey God. And it's not right. It's not right for us. We've been humbled, we've been repentant, and we want to obey God. It's not right for us to worship you or any other God. We have to worship God. 
but we can peacefully try to petition you and say, listen, we will serve you in every other way we can and enhance your kingdom and your government and to pray for blessing and to pray for your food and to pray for uh, the increase of your land and your wealth and your prestige and your wisdom. But we can't worship you. And that's, that's a proper way, a proper attitude for Christians to have toward those that are asking them to do something that they can't do. You tell them how many good things that you can do for them. And to say, but this one area, we can't, we just can't do that. That will be against uh, the, our true God who is our Lord and Master and King. He says we can serve you in many other ways, but we can't in this way. Uh, an example in the New Testament would be Peter and the Apostles. In Acts 5, they are all arrested. So all, it's, I, it indicates in the text that all the apostles are arrested. And so I believe it's all of them are arrested. And, they're in, and in Acts 1 through, I think, 12, 13, there's many examples of the apostles being flogged and beaten and imprisoned by varying government authorities. So read Acts 1 through 12 and look for these themes. Peter and all the apostles are arrested by the Jewish council and commanded not to speak in Jesus's, about Jesus' name or gospel, essentially. And this is in Acts 5, 17 through 42. What happens? Peter and the apostles are commanded to preach to the peoples the whole Christian message by an angel. They say they must obey God's command to teach this message to the people once again. They don't exhibit violence to the council of the Sanhedrin, and they don't disrespect them, but they say we have to serve God and obey what God has commanded us to do. We can't. We know that you're asking us not to teach, but we've been commanded by God to teach, and we are willing to suffer the repercussions. They were just in prison. Anyway, so God sends an angel to let them out of jail after they get imprisoned for this, and God allows them to be lashed uh, probably 39 times. And you can look in Deuteronomy about being beaten the law being beaten for disobeying by the council. The apostles, listen to what they do. They rejoice for being considered worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus and for his message. And they, what do they do after they were beaten? They kept preaching and teaching after the lashes were given to them by the, their government. Uh, now I want to go back to an Old Testament example, and that's the example of David and Saul. If we look in 1 Samuel 22 through 24, there are examples of civil disobedience, peaceful, nonviolent disobedience in the Bible that resulted in the death of those that peacefully disobeyed their leaders. So I gave you three examples of where the people didn't die. There are other examples where the people do end up dying. James, the brother of John, ends up being imprisoned and killed by Herod later on in Acts. I think it's Acts 11 or 12-ish. It might be 13. And so the, all the apostles get left out by an angel. And then a couple chapters later, Luke is telling us that God allows James to have his head or to be killed by the sword by Herod. So sometimes God protects and he gets the people to, to keep preaching the message and God protects us. Granted, he let them all be beaten. But then in another time, God might let somebody be killed for the sake of the gospel, and that that's according to God's will. God can send an angel if he wants to protect you, to allow something not to happen to you, and this happened in Paul's life. 
God protected Paul in many, many scenarios and situations. He was beaten a lot. He had a lot of things, but he didn't. He wasn't killed. And then it wasn't until after he got to Rome, and some people believe the second time in Rome, is that, is that then, as a Roman citizen, he gets a sword uh, thrust into him, a Roman death. As a Roman citizen, if you couldn't be crucified, you were to be killed with a sword, a more humane and swift death. So Paul is um, struck through with a sword, eventually, uh, by the uh, Roman officials. But God protected him in so many ways before then, that Paul's life was not to end until God had it sovereignly decided for Paul's life to end. And he lived a wonderful life, a wonderful example for us. So in 1 Samuel 22, 14 through 19, we have an example of how civil disobedient people were killed. In 1 Samuel 22, King Saul of Israel has 85 priests of God killed for not telling him where David was hiding. These men all died loyal to the Lord, to David and to King Saul, the present king, by not stopping the present king who was Saul. Interesting to note is this, that the servants and the soldiers that were with King Saul were unwilling to kill the priests themselves. That's also a case of civil disobedience. So all the soldiers that were with Saul that were Israelites said, no, we cannot do your order, king. It's wrong. They all believed it was wrong to kill the priests. They, they, didn't, they were like, no, we can't do that. They understood it to be wrong, and they were willing to disobey the king uh, with regard to that order. So Saul has to command his Edomite servant, so a non-Israelite. His name was Doeg, to do the deed of slaying the priests. Doeg either didn't know the law of the Lord or he did not care. He didn't at least take example like, well, why were all of Saul's other servants that I'm here with, why were they unwilling to kill the priests? So anyway, God in his sovereignty uh, allows Doeg to kill all of these priests. 85 men. I don't know, it doesn't say that they're running and fleeing for their lives. It appears that it's some kind of like military execution, you know, where they all face their execution uh, with possibly a form of courage. I'm sure many, many of them were worried and weeping in various ways, but man, what a, what an account. These men all get killed by one man with the sword, like this guy, then this guy, going down the line, killing these 85 guys. What a, a thing to behold. And all of the other servants of Saul, these soldiers who said we couldn't do it, they watched. Uh, Saul gave this Edomite the command and they watched. They didn't stop Saul. They didn't kill the Edomite. They, uh, they said, we can't do it. And then they watch as it's done by another man. And maybe they didn't know what they were supposed to do at the time. Some men could argue, well, they should have stopped Saul. Some men would say maybe they should have killed Saul himself. Uh, but they didn't. Uh, that they believed perhaps it was wrong to kill the Lord's anointed, like David's going to say. The loyal soldiers of Saul did not usurp or stop King Saul. Though they knew Saul was doing evil, they knew they could not partake, nor did they. 
These men behaved much like David was behaving toward Saul. Running and fleeing from Saul, seeking to serve Saul in whichever way he could still, but not taking Saul's life himself. They were still striving to obey and serve in a way they could the man that God had appointed as king. Two chapters later, in 1 Samuel 24, we read about how David has an opportunity to end King Saul's life and take the throne that he was already anointed by Samuel, the, the priest, to receive. So David's already knows that he's supposed to receive the throne, but he doesn't strive to put him, himself in that place before God's appointed time. David's men in the cave actually encourage David to kill Saul. They'd say, take his life. God has delivered him into your hands. Kill him. This is your opportunity. But David said no. Surely these men were saying, this is the lesser evil. You kill Saul, he's on a rampage, he's on madness, he's killing people, he's killing Israelites, he's trying to kill you, he's trying to kill us. You're already supposed to be king, what's the big deal? Let's just put this guy to death and get moving on with Israel and the kingdom. David realized that he could have made this happen, and he could have ended Saul's rampage and his madness, but David says uh, to Saul himself, he won't take his life. And this is what David's response is to Saul. After Saul comes out of the cave, David steps out of the cave, and he says this. I can't take your life, Saul. You know, you are God's anointed. David obeys God's commands and his laws to not harm an appointed leader. This is what David says. See, there is no rebellion in me to take your throne. And to sin against you. So David uses the terms no rebellion and not sinning. And then he says, let the Lord be the judge between you and me. So David's not taking justice into his own hands. He's not overthrowing or killing God's appointed king and government. But my hand shall not be against you. So David pledges that he will not take Saul's life himself. He's leaving that entirely in God's hands. He's leaving that entirely in God's hands. And Saul breaks down and weeps over this encounter with David. He realizes how just and right and merciful David has treated him. And he says, you know, God, you could have killed me and you didn't. He says, you are the more righteous man. And I see that you are going to be king. And so Saul asked David, please, when you become king, don't kill, don't wipe out my name from the earth. Don't kill all my descendants. Uh, so that's a really important chapter. I'd really encourage you to read Samuel 24, 1 Samuel 24, and look at all those details that David says. And this is the conclusion you have to arrive at. Either David, <coughs> excuse me, David was wrong in his interpretation and understanding of scriptural revelation up to this point in the law. <coughs> or he rightfully understood and interpreted and answered, Saul, there is no rebellion in me and I will not sin against you. So either David was wrong and didn't understand that he really could kill the king because king was a bad guy, or he was right saying that you're the present king, it's wrong and sinful, and it would be rebellious for me to kill you. 
I, I believe that the text strongly shows us that David's actions were right in this case. And that he was doing the right and lawful thing to not overthrow the king or the government or to kill him. And that it would have been sin for David to do so. I believe David rightly understands that it would have been sin and rebellion against king and God for him to do so in that moment. God speaks to individuals and to nations and governments in the Bible. The law of God is the model law of righteousness and wisdom that was meant to be a light of wisdom and righteousness to all nations surrounding Israel. Morality, law, righteous standards, justice, compassion, rules, economic law, ordinances, precepts, immigration law. God talks a lot about the foreigner and the alien in the Old Testament. That's right. And God talks a lot about orphans and widows when he talks about aliens and foreigners. That the Israelites were to love them and to care about them and want to show them the law of God. And that they were supposed to treat them fairly and with the same justice and have the same weights and measures when they dealt with the foreigners and the aliens. So there's a lot to learn about immigration law in the Old Testament. Foreign policy, war, principles in God's word are just as much for corporations, governments, businesses to heed and to be warned of as well as to all individuals. And this is my question I want to ask you all. Will Donald Trump or any other leader at any level of government or business have an excuse before God for claiming his name, using God's name, but not striving to do what is right in his government and in his personal life? And whether they claim to be Christians or not, or Jews or not, or any other religion or not, you're accountable to the one true God and to what his morals and principles of righteousness are and to what his gospel is. Nobody has an excuse like we've learned in Romans 1, 18. And nobody has an excuse, Romans 1, 18 through 21, 22. Everybody is guilty. Everybody is guilty of doing wrong. And that would include many governments, many people in a corporate body, a corpus, that are making decisions together uh, they're still just as guilty for breaking God's moral law and principles and for not recognizing the wisdom and not trying to implement and striving to serve God and God help us be wisely, you know, put these things into practice, whether we're a, a group or an individual. And that's true of elders in the church and of leaders outside of the church that are in varying uh, forms and levels of government. The law of the Lord, the whole Bible, will be used as a standard to judge all men's consciences, just like we've learned about in Romans 2. God will judge all peoples and kings and governments one day. And, like we talked about at the, I believe it's called the Bema Seat of Christ, the judgment of Christians, so this is different than the great white throne judgment and in, in, in how I understand these things, is that Christians will receive rewards from Christ for how they obeyed God. And Hebrews 13, 17 shows to me, essentially, I believe that the leaders in some event and somehow, the elders and the pastors and the teachers will be called forward. Um, I don't know exactly how that's going to be, but it looks like God's going to hold them accountable to how they to how they made decisions. Now, on the one hand, that's as an individual level. 
that's applied to all, all of them as individuals. But on another hand, it involves how they corporately, as, as a plurality of men, made decisions for their churches uh, because they did those things in unity together. And that God will judge them um, also as a corpus. So, the law of the Lord will be used as a standard to judge all peoples and kings and governments one day. Uh, God set up Israel with the Old Testament as a model of moral and good uh, laws, uh, to, as to be a nation with wise laws, and to be a light to the Gentiles, it says over and over again in the Old Testament. God made prescriptions in the law of Moses for Gentiles to come and be part of Israel and to be separate. And we'll look at a couple of verses. You could become part of Israel and you could pray in the court of the Gentiles during temple services. And so one of the ways that we know that God cared about Gentiles is that there was a court, an area of the temple that was for Gentiles to come and pray to. And we'll see this when King Solomon dedicates his temple. We'll see what, what Solomon says. Solomon, when dedicating the temple he built for the Lord, he said this. Also, when he's talking about to the Israelites, he says also concerning and talking to God, concerning the foreigner, the alien, who is not of your people Israel, when he comes from a far country for your namesake, God, for they will hear, all these other peoples that aren't Israelites, they will hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm. When he comes and prays toward this house in the temple, you hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls on you, in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name to fear you, which generally means obedience, as do your people Israel. And so, learning the ordinances of God and learning to fear him and to fear his ways and what he's revealed about himself and how he tells people to act and behave. That's what it means to fear the Lord. And that they may know that this house, the temple, which I have built is called by your name. And so Solomon understands that God had a plan for the Gentiles as a close student of the Old Testament. Solomon knew that the prescriptions in the law of Moses he must keep as king in regard to justice and rights for foreigners in his own land, Israel, as well as that the splendor and wisdom of the law of Israel was to bless the other nations. And we'll read how he knew that from Moses. Foreigners were to come and listen to the law, be read and learn and fear and do, and to take it back to their land. Solomon just said that they may know to fear your name. And so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and to fear you and to do as your people Israel do. Foreigners were to come listen to the law and they were to take it back to their lands to increase the wisdom of their own people. The law had wise principles of government and of morality. God's morals and God's wisdom is for all the peoples and the nations to learn to fear God and to be blessed through obedience just as Israel was to be blessed through obeying his ways. God's standards of justice and equity are not different from Israel as to England or Russia or any other nation or country or city. If an individual or a nation wants to observe the precepts of the Lord, let them learn the law and become wise. Listen to what Moses says in Deuteronomy 4. 
See, I have taught you statutes and judgments, just as the Lord my God commanded me, that you, Israel, Israelite people, should do thus in the land where you are entering to possess it. So, keep and do them. Keep and do the law. For that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, other peoples, other nations, who will hear of all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it, as is the Lord our God whenever we call on him? Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I am setting before you today? And so look at what Moses says here. When you guys keep the law, Israelites, this is going to be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of all the other peoples on the earth. They're going to hear all of these statutes that you are doing and keeping, and this is what they're going to say. Surely this great nation is wise and understanding people. Look at the way they live. Look at their laws. Look at their wisdom. Look at their principles. Look at their morality. It's great. Look at them flourish. And that was supposed to be a light to all these people. And the other people were going to bless Israel and say, you guys are a great nation. You guys are a wise and, and understanding and, and beautiful people serving the Lord, serving God. And when, when you say something like that, uh, that means you're going to prostrate yourself and want to absorb and take on what it is that you're seeing in these other peoples that you think is so wise and wonderful and understanding and good. They're going to see the statutes and judgments of this righteous law, and they're going to want to take it on for themselves. Uh, another example in case where the Bible uh, speaks to all the rulers of the earth is Psalm 82. It's a strong warning to the rulers of the earth concerning the neglect of justice according to God's standards. And many of those people didn't have God's standards. Nevertheless, Psalm 82 is addressed how God is going to judge all these other rulers for not knowing God's ways. Remember what we learned in Romans 1, 18 through uh, 31. Uh, nobody is going to have an excuse, including governments and rulers, according to Psalm 82. God's going to judge them for not enacting his justice and his standards and his law and his ways. They don't have an excuse. They're going to be accountable for that. Psalm 2 also speaks of that, and Psalm 58 speaks to rulers and individuals. Uh, let both individuals and corpus governments or rulers be warned concerning wickedness and serving the true king. Lord, thank you for this time. I pray that uh, we would all grow in wisdom and that we would understand how to read your word, to study it more and more. God, thank you for uh, allowing me time to study, for giving me energy to study. And uh, Lord, please guide me and direct me and give me wisdom in your word and your, in your ways and your truths. Help me to understand and how to communicate these things to uh, the people at, uh, are in our Sunday school class here in Romans and to, to the other people at our church, as well as to my neighbors and all the people in Pierre and Fort Pierre and the surrounding area. Uh, Lord, I ask that you would increase the wisdom of everyone in our class and in our church and that they would increase their knowledge and understanding of the gospel and that they'd be able to share the truth of the cross with their neighbors in this time. 
uh, during this coronavirus strain that has many people worried and and many people are are suffering because of it many old people are dying but Lord we continue to look at all life that uh, there's many people that are still in need of of the love and your truth and I pray that we would all be about doing your business uh, together God please bring us together in greater unity and in love and in truth that we would all love the truth greater and greater together and that we would grow in your truth and that we would be uh, forgiving and gracious and passionate, uh, compassionate with one another, that we would easily forgive and overlook a wrong and that we would uh, look to share and to love and to, to share what we have with others and with each other and that we would be a great church full of uh, salt and light for you and your glory. Amen.